Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Richmond, Virginia. Richmond was settled in 1607 by the English. The city has a very rich history with homes, churches, cemeteries, and battlefields all very much preserved and a major part of Richmond's character. It was at St. John's Cathedral in 1775 where Patrick Henry gave his famous speech, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, which was an important moment for gaining support for the Revolutionary War. You can also visit Appomattox Courthouse, where the final battle of the Civil War took place in 1865 and where the Confederacy surrendered to the Union Army. The city is now home to many lively neighborhoods and districts that entice visitors with cutting-edge restaurants and breweries, as well as diverse shopping, around-town biking tours, and one of the oldest farmer's markets in the country. Although crime rates have dropped significantly over the past two decades, it remains an ongoing problem. And in 2006, the murders that occurred during the first week of the new year shocked even the most seasoned homicide detectives. Brian and Catherine Harvey lived in the Woodland Heights neighborhood of South Richmond, Virginia, with their daughters, nine-year-old Stella and four-year-old Ruby. On January 1st, 2006, the Harveys were hosting a New Year's Day party with friends. It was set to start at 2 p.m., and Brian's longtime friend, Johnny Hot, arrived at the Harvey's home about 1.40 to help set up for the party. Johnny walked in the front door and immediately noticed smoke. He yelled out for the family, but nobody answered him, so he ran across the street and yelled for a neighbor to call 911. According to an article in the Richmond Times-Dispatch, written by Jim Nolan and Bill McElway, the first of dozens of firefighters showed up at about 1.45, just minutes after the 911 call. They immediately located the source of the fire as coming from the basement. The house was filled with black smoke, and the basement had zero visibility. Hoses doused the basement, with the rest of the structure remaining relatively unburned. It was then firefighters noticed the bodies. 
They removed 39-year-old Catherine and little Ruby and began checking for signs of life when they noticed what they called battle signs. Both had trauma to their bodies and their legs were bound. Firefighters then called the police. Detective Dwyer of the Richmond Police Department found nine-year-old Stella in the basement under a futon with her hands tied behind her back and taped around her mouth. 49-year-old Brian was discovered on the floor of the basement with an orange electrical cord wrapped around his wrists and feet and with melted tape around his face and a large wound on his neck. Detective Dwyer also found two claw hammers, two broken wine bottles, a knife handle, and a separate knife blade in the basement. Photographs of the crime scene were taken, and crime scene technicians began collecting the evidence. So, Kath, this is 145. All their guests are starting to arrive at 2 o'clock. This house is located on a corner. Both of the streets were loaded with emergency vehicles. And as their company is arriving, they're pulling out the bodies. And not only that, it was New Year's Day, so everybody's home. Yeah. The Harveys had lived in this red brick corner home for about five years, so all their neighbors knew them. Confused friends and neighbors cried as word trickled out that police were investigating the deaths as homicides. Forensic investigators and fire marshals worked to piece together a timeline of the murders and the fire. At the crime scene were police chief Rodney Monroe and new Commonwealth's attorney Michael Herring. Both men pledged the murders would be a top priority. No person interviewed could give any indication as to why the family may have been murdered. According to an article in the Richmond Times-Dispatch by Will Jones, Stacy Hawkins-Adams, and Daniel Neiman, published the day following the murders, the community was absolutely stunned. There had not been a murder in the Woodland Heights neighborhood since 1987 when a local doctor became a victim of the South Side Strangler, who was a serial killer, and that crime had long since been solved. The Harvey's community was more likely to experience petty vandalism or property theft. The Harvey family was clearly well-loved. Brian not only worked a technology job with the Henrico County School System, but he was also an avid musician. He played the bass, guitar, and sang vocals, and was currently playing in a popular band. He and Johnny Hot, the friend who arrived to help at the party, were a two-man band in the 80s and 90s called House of Freaks. They enjoyed modest fame in California during that time, opening up for bands like The Alarm and The Bangles before they returned to the East Coast. The news article pointed out that Catherine Harvey and a partner owned a successful gift shop and novelty store called World of Mirth. She was also the half-sister of Stephen Culp, who at the time played Rex Vandekamp on Desperate Housewives. Kath, I also saw a picture of Catherine from high school. She was the homecoming queen, and she looked so beautiful, and it looked like she had no makeup on whatsoever. Like, she just was really naturally pretty. According to the news article, nine-year-old Stella was in the third grade at Fox Elementary and was very artistic. Four-year-old Ruby, who attended preschool at Second Presbyterian Church, was a very happy child who liked to wear sparkly red shoes. When I read that, of course, I thought of my own daughter, number four, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) Not her fourth daughter, her fourth child. (laughs) When she was four years old, she was obsessively connected to her Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz outfit and wore her red sparkly shoes every single day. And carried a basket with her. Oh, yeah. And And had her hair in braids. It was so cute. And it was funny because little Ruby went to Second Presbyterian Church for preschool and Claire 
Blair actually went to First Presbyterian Church for preschool. Isn't that oh, funny? Really? Yeah. That is funny. My husband and I called it Smackdown Preschool because every Friday, these teachers would merge their classrooms, put mats in the middle of the floor, match up the four-year-olds and have them wrestle each other. Okay, my money's on your daughter. It was, she had three older brothers. <laughs> honestly, it was the kids loved it. I bet. It was hysterical. A private funeral service was held Friday night, five days after the murders, at Blyley Funeral Home Central Chapel. The next day, there was memorial service for the family at Bird Theater in Carytown. More than 1,400 people were there to remember the family who touched so many people in Richmond. The highlight of the service, Kath, was a performance by 15 of Brian's current and former bandmates, and they all got up there and sang together, and they all cried. Oh my gosh. Can you see that? That's so cool. It was also the last of three separate memorials that were held for the family. Detectives interviewed friends and family, including a woman named Kirsten Perkinson, who had spoken with Catherine Harvey at 9 a.m. on the day of the murders. Kirsten's daughter was friends with nine-year-old Stella, and Kirsten offered to bring Stella home from a sleepover. According to an Associated Press article by Kristen Jeleneau, Kirsten Perkinson brought her daughter and Stella to the Harvey's home around 10 a.m. Stella opened the front door and called for her mother. Catherine then came running up the basement steps and Stella ran past her down into the basement because, Kath, this is where I read the kids liked to play. Kirsten asked Catherine if she were all right because Catherine looked so pale. Catherine made the gesture of a gun at her head and rotated her finger in a circular motion. Like you're crazy. Exactly. And Catherine said, I'm not feeling well today. And so it struck Kirsten as odd, but she thought she was just sick. So she left. And here's the crazy thing. I read an article in the Virginian Pilot by Gary Harkey and Joanne Kimberlin, and it basically said that Kirsten's daughter tried to run past Catherine to follow Stella down the steps to the basement. Catherine grabbed her arm and shoved her back outside and said, I'm not feeling well. Like basically making sure the little girl didn't go down to the nightmare that was the basement. Correct. So Kirsten left and later said that it haunted her. That movement when Catherine formed her finger into a gun and just sort of made this circular movement. Like in hindsight, she realized she was trying to tell her something, but these people were probably listening and watching her every move. Anyway, homicide investigators extensively interviewed Johnny Hot, you know, Brian's best friend who came to the scene first. He told investigators that when he went into the home, he saw smoke, ran into the kitchen, didn't see the family, ran upstairs to search for the family, then opened the basement door and was overwhelmed by smoke. He then ran out of the house and yelled to the neighbor to call 911. The homicide investigator asked him whether the gas stove in the kitchen was on when he went in and he said no. They knew he was lying because it was obvious to anyone who went into the kitchen that one of the burners was on. And there was no forced entry in the house calf, so they thought, okay, maybe it was somebody they knew. They pushed and pushed, and at this point, he was a person of interest because he kept saying, no, that's what happened, that's what happened. And ultimately, he was dismissed as a suspect because he was simply exaggerating his rescue efforts. Probably because he felt guilty that he wasn't able to save them or, or he, do more or, or didn't, didn't go in the try. House. Exactly. Yeah. And part of me is like, I can't blame him for not wanting to run into a burning house. I was freaking terrified of fire for years. Did I ever tell you that story? I don't think so. Okay. I'll tell you the story. And if you don't like it, you could cut it out. You know how my mom, Laura, would go for weeks at a time to visit her sisters in Chicago? Still does. Exactly. My dad is watching us. I was little. I was about the height, probably eye level to like the kitchen counter. Anyway, we wanted to have a fire one night. It was my dad, my brother and I, my older brother. And we kept a gas key to the fireplace in this very tall kitchen cabinet. 
My dad gets the key, turns a fireplace gas on, puts the key back, loads the logs, lights the fire, and it freaking explodes. Oh my God. Out of the fireplace, and the fire is licking the painted white bricks above the fireplace. I'm telling you, that fire was like four or five feet above the bricks. My dad never opened the flue. <laughs> So he yells, get the key. And I he am little. I'm little. It was like I had superhuman strength. It was like I flew up onto the counter. You probably did. Got the key, handed the key to my dad, and he turned the gas off. And of course, the fire immediately went out. But it terrified the hell out of me. So my mom returns like two weeks later. and <laughs> The white painted bricks above the fireplace are totally charred black. Your dad didn't paint those? <laughs> no. That's so, the first rule. So my mom was <laughs> Cover like, the evidence. what the hell happened here? You know, it's like, <laughs> anyway, so for years, for years, I was terrified of fire, but which was odd because when I was 13, I totally became a pyromaniac. <laughs> you went the opposite way. <laughs> exactly. But it still actually remains one of my fears. Like the thought of being burned, oh, let alone badly burned. Yeah. One of my worst fears. I can't even. Yeah. People who go into burning flames, like firemen's jobs. Amazing. Unbelievable. Yep. Unbelievable. Absolute heroes every day. Totally. Richmond police had no suspects, no leads, and no motive. In fact, homicide detectives knew they were seriously hindered. Because of the fire and the hosing down of the basement, crime scene technicians found no fingerprints, no DNA, no hair, and no fibers that could assist them in connecting the killer to the crime scene. Five days after the Harvey's murder, at about 7.30 p.m., after receiving a tip, police surrounded a home five miles south of the Harvey home in a neighborhood known for gang activity and public drug transactions. Officers knocked on the front door and didn't get a response, so they walked around the house and banged on the windows, but still didn't see anybody. So they went back to the front door, prepared to breach it, but one of them actually turned the knob cath and found it unlocked, so they were able to enter the house without doing any damage. As officers walked into the house, the first thing they saw was a deceased adult male under the coffee table with his hands and feet bound by a lamp cord. In the first bedroom, detectives found a deceased female face down on the bed with her hands tied behind her back with a cord. In the rear bedroom was a deceased female on the floor. Her hands and legs were also wrapped up with lamp cords. Kath, it was horrible. All three victims had a sock stuffed down their throat and they had duct tape wrapped all around their mouths, noses, and their face. On top of that, they also had plastic wrap wrapped around their heads. In every article I read about this crime scene, over and over and over, journalists use the word tortured. Yeah, Kath, the homicide detective said that they were horrified by what they saw, that they had never, ever seen a crime scene where people had been murdered in this manner. The house belonged to 55-year-old Percy L. Tucker and his 47-year-old wife, Mary Baskerville Tucker. Mary's 21-year-old daughter, Ashley Baskerville, was the third body found in the house. Perciel and Mary were hardworking and caring people who loved to cook, and Mary was very active at her church, the Fifth Baptist Church in Richmond. Perciel was a forklift operator, and Mary worked at a dry cleaner. They had been married for eight years, but had been together for almost two decades. Mary's sister, Joanne Barnes, said that 21-year-old Ashley had recently gotten out of jail, but was taking classes and looking for a job. She said she spoke with Mary and Ashley by phone almost every day. Ms. Barnes also said that by the time Ashley was 10, she was hooked up with the wrong people. She began using drugs at an early age and became rebellious and defiant towards her mother and stepfather. It reached a point, Kath, where her mother could not control her, so she turned Ashley over to the welfare department, which I think is probably Child Protective Services? Probably. After that, Ashley was in and out of detention homes and jails. 
However, at the time of the murders, Ashley was living with her mother and Percyell and were making steps toward a reconciliation. Mary and Percyell Tucker had separate funerals. Mary and Ashley's funeral was held a week later at Fifth Baptist Church. Both were in lavender caskets. Percyell's funeral was held the next day at Rocky Mount Baptist Church in Skipwith, which was about 100 miles southwest of Richmond near the North Carolina border. Family and friends agreed that Mary and Percyell were a mild-mannered, hardworking, and respected couple who had no enemies. So as we mentioned a moment ago, the police received a tip that led them to Mary Percyell's and Ashley's murder scene. According to an article by Jim Nolan and Mark Bowes of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Lillian Polly was a concerned mother who called Chesterfield Police on Friday, January 6th, five days after the Harvey murder. Lillian and her 21-year-old daughter, Latoya Polly, told Chesterfield Police that they feared for the safety of Latoya's friend, Ashley Baskerville. Now, Kath, Lillian and Latoya actually lived in Chesterfield, even though the Baskerville Tucker crew lived in South Richmond. So Lillian called their local police, and that's how Chesterfield cops got involved. Lillian and Latoya informed police that two men who had began staying with them on New Year's Day may have harmed Ashley. They also told Chesterfield police that these two men may have been involved in the murders of the Harvey family that was all over the newspapers. Chesterfield police immediately called Richmond police and informed detectives about this tip. Okay, you know the Chesterfield police were like, not it. Right, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) No crime happened in our jurisdiction. We're going to get, we got to get Richmond on the horn. Yeah, they got to take over the work. (laughs) Yeah, so the Richmond homicide team, of course, eager for any clues, followed up with Latoya and her mother, and the information they were given eventually led them to the murdered Baskerville Tucker family. Once the bodies of Mary, Percyell, and Ashley were discovered, Richmond homicide investigators circled back to Lillianne and Latoya for a more in-depth interview. And what detectives learned was horrifying. Ashley and Latoya met when they were teenagers, both serving time in a juvenile detention center. LaToya told Richmond detective John Bandy that although she had not seen Ashley in a long time, Ashley had come by her house several weeks prior with two men. One was 28-year-old Ray Dandridge, a friend of Ashley's, and the other was 28-year-old Ricky Gray, who actually happened to be Dandridge's uncle, even though they were the same age. Ashley tried to have the two men stay with her at her mother and stepfather's house, but Mary and Percyell were not interested in this and kicked them all out. So Ashley went to LaToya to see if she could stay with her. Lily and Polly arrived home to find the three of them hanging out with LaToya. Both men were absolutely solicitous when Lillianne got home. Mm-hmm. She had grocery bags, so they ran out to help her bring those in. They also gave her a basket of chocolate chip cookies. And so when LaToya asked if the three could stay for a few days, Lillianne said yes, because her first impression of them was very positive. Mm-hmm. But within a short period of time, Lillianne began feeling very uncomfortable about them. Lillianne overheard LaToya, Ashley, and the two men talking about a plan to rob someone. LaToya was saying she did not want to take part in it, but Ashley was all in. After Lillianne overheard the conversation, she went to look in one of the bags the men had brought in and saw hammers, drills, and other tools. She told her daughter what she saw, but LaToya told her, pretend you don't know and you cannot show fear. She promised they would soon be out of the house. LaToya told Detective Bandy that early in the morning of January 6, 2006, the four of them were hanging out. 
actually said they needed to get some money and said that her stepfather, Percy L., kept cash in the house. Ashley, Gray, and Dandridge decided to stage a kidnapping for ransom. So, Kath, the plan was to enter the house, tie everybody up, and then the two men were going to say, we're going to take Ashley with us unless you give us some money. So Ashley let Gray and Dandridge into the home at about 3.30 a.m. Several hours later, Gray and Dandridge returned to LaToya's house without Ashley. LaToya asked Dandridge where Ashley was, and he said, Ashley gone bye-bye. LaToya said one of the reasons she and her mom called the police was because she was afraid they were going to kill her next. I would have been scared to death. Heck yeah. So when Detective Bandy asked LaToya why she believed Gray and Dandridge were connected to the Harvey family murders, she explained that she had seen Ashley with a laptop deleting photos of the murdered family, which she recognized from news broadcasts. So, Kath, what LaToya said was that Ashley was sitting in the back seat of Gray's car. LaToya came up beside the car without Ashley realizing it. LaToya sees the laptop open and she sees that Ashley is looking through pictures of this family that she has recognized from being on the news as murder victims. Ashley is going through the photos and she is just deleting, deleting, deleting. So LaToya turns around and goes back into the house without letting Ashley know that she saw, you know, the photos of the Harvey family. The day after the murders of the Baskerville Tucker family, Detective Bandy was called to the medical examiner's office. While the medical examiner was conducting Ashley Baskerville's autopsy, they removed a necklace that she had been wearing. On the chain was a wedding band, which turned out to belong to Brian Harvey. This was the first piece of evidence definitively connecting Ashley to both homicide scenes. Hi, everyone. We're big on game nights throughout the year and especially believe they make fantastic presents. Our favorite family game right now is Telestrations. It's kind of like the telephone game we played as kids, but drawing pictures instead. So go to our Instagram, click on the link tree and head to our website. There you'll see the Amazon button, which will take you straight to the game. Purchasing this item helps support us. And the best part is it does not cost you anything extra. According to the Oxygen episode, Baskerville Tucker Harvey, LaToya gave detectives three phone numbers for Ray Dandridge. One was a cell phone and two were landlines. At the request of Richmond detective Bill Brereton, she called Dandridge on his cell phone while police recorded the conversation. LaToya asked Dandridge what happened to Ashley, and he said she didn't need to worry about Ashley anymore. He said they killed Ashley because she wanted a bigger cut from the robberies and told Gray and Dandridge she would go to the police if they didn't agree. On the call, LaToya also got Dandridge to admit on the phone that he had taken Percy L. Tucker's Chevy Blazer and he and Gray were headed to Pennsylvania. So Richmond Detective Bandy started researching the two landline numbers LaToya provided and came up with an address in Philadelphia. He called the Philadelphia Police Department and was put in touch with Detective Howard Peterman. Bandy told him he was investigating a triple homicide and was looking for a stolen vehicle taken from the crime scene and gave him the address he came up with that belonged to one of the landlines. Detective Peterman promised Bandy they would check it out. And Kath, not more than 15 minutes later, Detective Peterman called back and said they found the Chevy Blazer. It was sitting in the driveway of the address Detective Bandy had provided. It was a residence and there were lights on and movement inside the house. Since Philadelphia PD knew that the men who could be inside the house were linked to a triple homicide, they called in the SWAT team to help them make the arrest. The residence was the home of Ray Dandridge's dad, Ronald Wilson. 
in the early morning of January 7th, 2006. So this is just the day after the Baskerville Tucker murders. And it was less than 12 hours after they discovered the bodies. I know this was quick. The SWAT team entered the house. Gray and Dandridge were both there. Dandridge was eating breakfast. And when he heard police coming in through the front door, he tried to run past them unsuccessfully. Gray was found hiding in the basement of the home behind a water heater. He grabbed a battery-operated electric drill and acted like it was a weapon. As they were arresting him, Detective Bandy said that Gray got somewhat bumped in the head with a shotgun. (laughs) I don't know if he had a Southern accent, but it felt right. Exactly. (laughs) In the course of being pulled out. Now, both Gray and Dandridge were then arrested. Richmond homicide investigator Conrad Sims gave credit to Lily Ann and Latoya Polly for coming forward with this break in the case. With everything. It led to everything. You're right. You're absolutely yeah. right. So Dandridge and Gray were brought to the Philadelphia police station and Dandridge immediately began talking. So Detective Peterman Mirandized him, listened to his story and had Dandridge sign a written confession. Now, Kath, Dandridge knew he needed to get ahead of the situation and he wanted to make a plea deal and he started saying so immediately. So I am sure the Richmond detectives were on their way and it would have been customary for them to interview the suspects because they were the ones who were the captain of the ship. What I think happened is that Dandridge just started blathering, just going, I want to talk, I want to talk. And so the Philadelphia detective was like, so I got to strike while the iron's hot. And Richmond is about four, four and a half hours away from Philadelphia. So they had a long car ride ahead of them. I have no doubt they were in contact with the Richmond detectives going, um, hi, you want me to keep doing this? Right, exactly. So anyway, Detective Peterman gets a good confession out of Dandridge. Then he goes to Gray and basically says, hey, yo, your nephew's talking. And so Gray then says, well, I want to tell you my side of the story. So he gets a confession out of Gray as well. He gets a confession out of both before Richmond detectives even set foot in the place. Exactly. I love that. You know, the Richmond detectives were like, oh, exactly. This is our case. Exactly. (laughs) Ricky Gray was charged with five counts of capital murder of the Harvey family, including murder committed during the commission of a robbery murder of more than one person within a three-year period, and murder of somebody under the age of 21. Ray Dandridge was charged with three counts of capital murders of the Baskerville Tucker family. Both men pleaded not guilty. Now, what was interesting, Kath? Prosecutors immediately requested a gag order on the case. They did not want the press coverage to give the defendants grounds for a change of venue. Basically, the prosecutor was quoted as saying, the citizens of Washington County deserve to see justice for these crimes. (laughs) He was a very erudite gentleman, the way you're talking about it. I like the way you did it. I could see him like standing in front of a podium. Pontificating. Exactly. Exactly. Which is what they do. Right. So the judge immediately granted the gag order and it was absolutely shocking how little attention in the press it received after that. It was just rehashing old stories and they got smaller and smaller because they had nothing to add to them. Everybody respected the gag order. Ricky Gray was the first to go to trial. In a Richmond Times-Dispatch article on August 13, 2006 by Paige Aiken-Mudd, Circuit Judge Beverly Snookles presided over the trial. By the way, I read a ton of articles by Paige Aiken-Mudd. She was all over this case. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, she was a pit bull. This was the judge's first capital murder trial. Now, Gray had the benefit of two private attorneys, which I'm assuming Richmond must also do this when they need a public defender, they go to the private sector. If they don't have a public defender that's suitable for whatever reason, then yes, they go to the private sector. Okay. Jeffrey Everhart was asked by the court and Everhart asked for the assistance of defense attorney Ted Bruns. 
Both men had extensive experience. The three-person prosecution team included the Commonwealth's attorney, Michael Herring, as well as Matthew Geary and Learned Barry, all of whom also had extensive experience. Now, Kath, at the time of the murder, Gray was 28 years old. Prosecution first presented the medical examiner who testified that Brian Harvey's mouth had been gagged and taped and that he had been cut eight times in his neck and underneath his chin. But those wounds were not immediately fatal. He experienced severe third-degree burns to his skin and died from the hammer blows to his skull. Catherine had also been stabbed in her upper torso, but those wounds were not fatal. Hammer blows caused a fracture to the plate above Catherine's eyes, resulting in bleeding behind her eyes, and she died from blunt force trauma. Nine-year-old Stella and four-year-old Ruby were treated in the same fashion and essentially died the same way. However, one of the girls also suffered from smoke inhalation. Although forensic evidence showed that the knife blade recovered from the Harvey's home had traces of blood from Brian, Catherine, Stella, and Ruby, no other DNA was found on it. As a result of the fire, prosecutors did not have any physical evidence tying any perpetrator to the murder scene, as we said previously. Prosecutors called Philadelphia homicide detective Howard Peterman to the stand, and on August 17, 2006, he read Gray's signed confession to the jury. It was the most damning evidence against him, and many of the jurors were crying. The confession established that Gray, Dandridge, and Ashley Baskerville were involved in the murders of the Harvey family, with Ashley acting as a lookout. Although nine-year-old Stella Harvey was not home when Gray and Dandridge entered, Gray admitted to taking the family to the basement. He assured the family that he and Dandridge would leave after they took what they wanted from the home. Gray then tied up Brian with the electrical cords that we previously mentioned. Before Gray and Dandridge could find items to steal, they heard a noise upstairs on the home's main level. Kirsten Perkinson had arrived to drop off Stella. Gray told Catherine he would kill her family if she said anything, but he allowed her to answer the door. That's when Stella ran downstairs to the basement and was quickly subdued. That's just so awful. I mean, Ugh, I can't even imagine the choice Catherine Harvey had to make was, I mean, obviously she saved the, the little Perkinson girl, but she also could have taken Stella and ran mm-hmm. and called for help to mm-hmm. try and get them. But she also knew that was signing a death warrant for her husband and four year old Ruby. And remember, at that point, they had been told, we just want this stuff and we're going to leave. Right. What a horrible. I, I, I just I can't it, even imagine. It's the, impossible. Yeah. Impossible. To, Absolutely. Oh. So in the confession, Gray said he was high on PCP on the day of the crimes and he intended to burgle homes. Now, here's the thing. He kind of threw, not kind of, he did throw Ashley under the bus and she can't defend herself because at this point she's dead. But what Gray said in his confession is that Ashley offered up the Harvey home as the perfect target. According to him, Ashley had babysat the children in the past, but when Brian and Catherine Harvey found out she was charged with possession of drugs, they fired her. That's what he told police. I found it nowhere else. I can't verify that it's true. We did a pretty deep dive trying to figure out if there was any connection at all. Right. And we could not find it. So what he said, Gray tells the officers that he and Dandrich and Ashley drove through the neighborhood and parked down the street from the home. Gray saw that the front door was open and said, it's a go. 
So, Kath, they had a regular front door and then they had a glass storm door. So the glass storm door was closed, but he could see their front door was open. And only because I lived on the East Coast do I know what a storm door is. And only because you have relatives in Chicago do you know what a storm door is. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Screen doors I got. Right. Storm doors, not so much. Yeah, exactly. In fact, in one of the articles that I read, it mentioned nothing about Ashley being a babysitter. And it said that the three of them chose the house because they saw the front door was open. So that's pretty terrifying if that's true. I I just don't know. So anyway. Makes you want to go home and lock your door, huh? (laughs) Seriously. Gray told officers that Ashley wanted a bigger role, but he made her stay in the car and act as a lookout. Gray said he then used an extension cord to bind Brian and then he tied up Catherine and the girls. He said, again, he was very high on PCP and the next thing he knew, it went crazy. He said Catherine attempted to comfort her distraught daughters and she told Gray that he should take what he wanted and just leave. Suddenly, Gray took out a knife and cut Catherine's throat and then cut the throats of the young girls and Brian. And as part of the signed confession, it says, quote, it was a real nasty scene. How am I supposed to explain something like what happened? I started cutting their throats and they kept getting up and they were scaring me. I remembered seeing the hammer and picking it up and then I was just hitting them all with a hammer. All I know is nobody was moving when I left out there, end quote. Gray said Dandridge participated in hitting Catherine but would not touch the two little girls. They knew they needed to cover their tracks and decided to start a fire. Then they quickly took what they could, a basket of cookies, Brian's wedding band, and a laptop. Now, Kath, remember we talked about them giving Lily and Polly a basket of cookies when they got there? That's where they got it from. They showed up at her house later that day. Right. Can you imagine? Here's like cookies from the murdered family. Right. Now, at the end of the confession with the police, detectives asked Gray if he had anything further to say. His response was, none of this was necessary. Understatement of the year. Absolutely. Now, Gray's attorney stipulated at trial that specific items of evidence were stolen by him. Brian's wedding ring, the cookie basket, as well as the laptop from the Harvey's home, all of which were admitted into evidence. Gray's attorneys also stipulated to the boots found at the Philadelphia residence where he was arrested as belonging to him. Brian and Stella's bloodstains were discovered on Gray's boots. The prosecution also introduced gruesome photographs of the victims and showed them to the jury. Kath, it caused some of the jurors to cry. I could see that. In a news article by Jim Nolan and Paige Aiken Mudd, it was reported that after one day of evidence from the prosecution, Gray's attorneys conceded that Gray was the killer. The jurors returned a verdict of guilty as to all five capital murder counts. Basically, Kath, the defense attorneys were putting all their eggs in one basket. They knew that he was done on the guilt phase and they just did not want him put to death. So they really focused hard on the penalty phase and the mitigating circumstances behind the life of Ricky Gray. Prosecutors introduced Gray's extensive criminal record, which included robbery, battery, distribution of drugs, possession of drugs, and they also admitted into evidence the uncharged crimes to which Gray had confessed. The bludgeoning death of his wife, which occurred two months before the Harveys were murdered. He also admitted to stabbing a man on the street. And he also admitted to participating in the brutal slayings of the Baskerville Tucker family. Harvey family relatives testified, of course, about the devastation and grief the murders caused and how much they missed Brian and Catherine and Stella and Ruby. 
In mitigation, Gray offered his mother's testimony describing his childhood and his home life. His mother described how Gray struggled to learn to read, was hyperactive and disruptive in the classroom, and every time his stepfather would whip him with a leather strap. His mother testified about how Gray wet his bed most nights until he was 13 years old, resulting in additional beatings from his stepfather. Gray was routinely blamed by his siblings for things that happened in the house, resulting in even more beatings by his stepfather. Gray's sister Ava described how he was raped by his stepbrother when he was only four years old and that such rapes occurred on a regular basis. It was, Kathy, it was actually like more than once a week. Oh my God. Yeah, for the next seven years. Ava testified that Grace started to use drugs when he was 12 or 13 years old and eventually left home at 17. And by this time, he was a cocaine addict. That's tragic. I know. Dr. David Lisek and Dr. Mark Cunningham, both psychologists, testified about the impact of child abuse and trauma on Gray. Ultimately, Dr. Cunningham opined that Gray was likely to make a positive adjustment to prison or an adjustment that is free from serious violence. Okay, I thought this was a ridiculous statement for him to make because prison is not violence free. I don't understand it. Yeah, this was a leap of logic, but this is a guy basically trying to justify his existence in prison rather than getting the death sentence. In a Richmond Times-Dispatch article by Paige Aiken-Mudd, my fave, on August 23rd, 2006, it says, quote, In the end, it all came down to the girls. After more than 12 hours of heated deliberations, the jurors agreed that Ricky Javon Gray must pay with his life for taking those of young Stella and Ruby Harvey. As Judge Beverly Snookles of the Richmond Circuit Court read the verdicts recommending that Gray be condemned to death, Harvey family and friends in the courtroom let out an audible sigh of relief and wept quietly. The judge also choked back tears. This has probably been the most difficult thing you've ever done. Probably for me too, she told the jurors. Since the jury returned the verdict of death for Gray, the Commonwealth decided not to prosecute him for the Baskerville-Tucker murders. The prosecutor said that had the jury returned a life sentence, they would have pushed for Gray's prosecution in the other three murders. Now, Kath, Ray Dandridge's trial began approximately three weeks later on September 18th, 2006. He was charged with three counts of capital murder for the suffocation deaths of Perciel and Mary Tucker and Mary's daughter, Ashley Baskerville. On the first day, prosecutors told the jury that less than an hour after being arrested, Dandridge confessed to the triple homicide. He told detectives that he and Gray had already talked before they went into the Tucker house that Ricky was going to kill Ashley because she wanted too much money. And Kath, Ashley and Gray were dating when she was freaking murdered. And he and Dandridge went in knowing they were going to murder her. That's nuts. Oh, I, I just can't even imagine that mindset. Disgusting. I kind of don't know if I believe them. Ashley had been in and out of jail and prison from a very young age. After killing the members of the Harvey family, she went to them and said, I want more money or I'm going to the cops. 
I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't I, know. I, just, I, I don't have a hard time believing it. What otherwise would be Gray's motivation for killing his freaking girlfriend? Well, but they hadn't been dating that long. He'd only been out of jail for a short time. She'd only been out of jail for a short time. Well, whatever. All I know is that they were dating. No, I believe that. I'm just saying, like, he did not want another witness. No, 100%. I agree with that. That's what I think it is. Yeah. As we said, Ashley let Gray and Dandridge into the house at 3.30 in the morning on January 6th. They tied everyone up including Ashley, and ransacked the house, taking television, stereos, some jewelry, and some food. Because burglary makes you hungry. Or you need to give cookies to someone to stay in the house. maybe. After Gray and Dandridge loaded the items into Mr. Tucker's Chevy Blazer, Dandridge said Gray used a knife to cut the necks and throats of Mary and Perseal Tucker. Now, according to Dandridge's written confession, he was the one who stuffed a sock in their mouths and wrapped layers of duct tape and plastic wrap around their faces and heads. His DNA was actually found on the adhesive side of the tape used on Mary Tucker and Ashley Baskerville. So this is all that happened on the first day of trial. Right. Dandridge's defense team also started raising doubts about whether it was Dandridge or Ricky Gray who was the most responsible for the deaths of Percy Ellen Mary Tucker and Ashley Baskerville. Now, they're raising these doubts. And one of the things that both sides are taking into consideration, Kath, is that Dandridge was found to have an IQ below average. 80s, the low end of average. Okay. And he was actually below that. So definitely a significant developmental disability for Dandridge. Which, of course, your defense attorney can exploit. You know. And they should. Yeah. No, 100%. And, and that's actually like when I read the papers, like, I mean, article after article after article, it did seem that Gray was the guy. Right. And Dandridge was the follower. Well, and after they were arrested at Dandridge's father's house, his father said several times that throughout Dandridge's life, he had told him to stay away from Ricky because the only time Dandridge ever got in trouble was when he was with Ricky. And damn, did they get in trouble. Yeah. And when this happened, Dandridge had only been out of prison for a couple of years after having served time for robbery. Do you know if uh, Ricky Gray was involved in that robbery with him? I don't know. I I assume they were, but I don't know that. Well, we assume because Dandridge's dad said that's when he got in trouble. Right. That's his MO. Right. Whatever Ricky Gray does, he does. He does too. So, Kath, the prosecution became a little concerned that with all of these different elements now being introduced into the trial, mm-hmm. that the judge would allow lesser offenses than capital murder to be considered. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the prosecution wants him to serve as much time as possible because of all the horrific things he did. For sure. And if the jury considered and convicted on first degree murder as opposed to capital murder, he would only face 20 years to life and could have been out in 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. So on the second day of trial... In an unexpected turn of events, Ray Dandridge entered a plea deal in which he pleaded guilty to the Baskerville Tucker murders and the Harvey family murders. As part of the agreement, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and gave up his right to appeal. Kath, I was happy about that because it bums me out for the victim's families if all of the perpetrators do not pay for what they did to your loved one. Right. You know, and so like Ricky Gray didn't get charged with the Baskerville Tucker murders. That bums me out a little bit, but I understand it because he got a death sentence. But they had to rearrain Dandridge charge him with the Harvey murders, have him plead guilty, and then accept a life sentence. I was glad they did that for the victims' families. Absolutely. However, 
The Baskerville Tucker families were disappointed because Ricky Gray was sentenced to death and that's what they wanted for Dandridge as well. Ah, So Mary Tucker's sister, Daisy Adams, said that Dandridge didn't show any remorse, yet he got to breathe every day, but her sister was gone, which I get. I totally get it too. But in the big scheme of justice with this low IQ, perhaps this is what's fair. Well, and that's really where they got to. And the prosecution talked to the families about it. Mary's other sister, Joanne Barnes, said that she had hoped that the case would have gone to the jury and resulted in a conviction and death, but at least he got what he deserved and she knew he would never get out. Mm -hmm. After declining to offer any last words, Ricky Gray was executed on January 18th, 2017, 11 years after the murders by lethal injection at the Greenville Correctional Center in Jarrett, Virginia. He was 39 years old and pronounced dead at 9.42 p.m. Ray Dandridge is now 45 years old and remains incarcerated at Red Onion State Prison. Mary Baskerville Tucker and Ashley Baskerville are buried at the Greenwood Baptist Church Cemetery in Virginia, and their headstones have a picture of them with the sentiment, Always in Our Hearts. Percy L. Tucker is buried at the Rocky Mount Baptist Church Cemetery in Virginia. Brian, Catherine, Stella, and Ruby are buried together in the same grave with their headstone featuring four birds to represent the family flying into the sky next to the words, Remember Me Well, which was the title of one of Brian's songs. Next to their names, the headstone says, Forever Together, January 1st, 2006. Thanks for listening. Thank you for buying Telestrations on Amazon. (laughs) Thank you for signing up for Patreon when we eventually set it up. After the new year, look for Patreon. (laughs) We will have extra episodes on Patreon and we'll make it worth your while. (laughs) That sounds so bad. (laughs) Oh my God. Please rate, review, follow, subscribe, download. Blah, 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 blah. You know what to do. Exactly. Exactly. At Killer Destinations Podcast. And for those of you who listen on Spotify, our Spotify wrapped numbers were awesome. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.